Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, and joining me again on this episode is Dr. Heather Ritchie. You doing all right, mate? Oh, excellent. I had so much fun last time, I couldn't refuse to come back again. (laughs) So to dive straight into recent deep sea news, on the last episode, Johanna teased there was a new species that she's not allowed to talk about. And since then, the paper is out. So welcome to the world, Eurothenes atticamensis. Critter we picked up back in 2018, in the Atacama Trench, which is the southern part of the Peru-Chile Trench, running down the west coast of South America. And it's found from 5,000 to over 8,000 meters deep. And it tends to arrive at our bait in big numbers. It was one of the dominant scavengers down there when we sent our, our cameras and traps down. And it's just a really nice paper, a collaboration between Chilean, Dutch, German, and British scientists. Johanna was the lead author and, and the authority on this new species, so well done her. Oh, and definitely check out the illustrations. Uh, it's an open access paper, so everyone can read it. There's no paywall. Another bit of new science, regular co-host Alan was chief scientist on the Five Deeps expedition to the deepest point in all five oceans and to dive them. And of course, in order to do that, it required mapping the seabed and finding out just where the deepest point was. They needed the most advanced multi-beam that's currently available. I think it's it's still the only ship with it fitted. It's a brand new design specializing for, for deep water. Uh, you'll also remember friend of the show, Heather Stewart, from the geology episode. And she talked about how that mapping worked and how they found those spots. And then Cassie Bongiovanni, who was the surveyor for, well... Pretty much the whole five deeps, she, she lived on that boat for that whole year. Uh, and this is her first, first author paper. It's an open access paper of the high quality seabed data of the deepest places in each ocean. And as we talked about in the geology episode, most of the maps we have of the seabed, well, most of the coverage at least, is gravity derived, meaning that we look at the distortions to the surface of the water and that's how we figure out what's going on down there. But that has like a resolution of kilometers. But this is high-resolution multi-beam data, so that's when we bounce sound directly off the seabed, and it gives much more detail. And so during the Five Deeks expedition, they mapped 550,000 kilometers of high-quality seabed data, and 61% of that was areas that have never been mapped before, and 30% were of the ocean's deepest places. So this data is now available through an open-access paper. It's available to everyone. And it's been submitted to Seabed 2030, which is a collaboration between the Nippon Foundation and JEBCO, who's the general bathymetric chart of the oceans. And they hope to have all of the oceans mapped by 2030. So no more interpolating from gravity. So we can finally stop talking about the moon. This will finally, this will put it to bed. We will, we will have measured everything. 2030 is not that far away. I know, I know. And it's still ambitious. That's a huge amount of now publicly accessible data for you to rake through, look for pyramids, look for roads, realize they weren't there. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like fun. There's nothing else to do. Things haven't fully opened up yet. So in 2014, we discovered the Mariana snailfish, which turned out to be the world's deepest fish. And we went on to describe that. And well, it's become a familiar face now. We see a lot of it. But just south of the Mariana Trench, there is, well, it's a whole trench complex, but basically joining it on the south end is the Yap Trench. Recently, there's been a lot more work done by the Chinese out there. I worked with a team describing some of the fauna seen from video surveys using their submersible. And when we were analyzing that data, I made the call that it is probably still the Mariana snailfish because the divide between the Yap and the Mariana Trench is at 6,000 meters deep. And we know these snailfish come shallower than that. We've seen them sort of just over 5,000, 5,500. So there's no reason to think 
that that would form a barrier and that would cause two separate species to form. There would be gene flow, there would be animals moving across. Another team has now actually captured one of the yap snailfish and have sequenced the whole genome. So now both the yap snailfish and the Mariana snailfish have been fully sequenced. I think I'm understanding what's going on in this paper, Heather. I might need you to decode it a little bit for me. It's a very genetics-heavy paper. The first thing is, am I wrong? <laughs> they, they estimated that the, the Mariana and the yap trench snailfish diverged about a million years ago. That's really quite recent in terms of speciation. Yeah, disappointed, Tom. I thought you would have been an expert after our long <laughs> chat over the genetics episode last time. I still can't use it. Oh, yeah, there's that <laughs> part to it. <laughs> or think critically about how it's been used, maybe. But yeah, in terms of like their estimate, it's sort of funny to say things like, oh, it very recently, one million years ago, in the sort of way where we say, oh, that's a really young trench because that was only formed 60 million years ago. And then these parts separated very recently at 20 million years ago. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of in ge <laughs> geological time, aren't we, when we're talking species? Yeah. So one million years ago is incredibly recently, but I always think you have to take estimates like these with a pinch of salt. There's obviously like the, the tree they built is as good a tree as you could get with the sort of available genomes, but some of their error bars can be quite big. That's not to be like disparaging and it's not to say it's not useful information, but just that you have to take all of that into consideration. And on the tree, they're very, very close together and the difference between them is very, very small. I would never say no to a new genome. Um, <laughs> Love a new genome. Oh no, I'm full. I'm full. I couldn't possibly have another genome. It's very cool that we're we're getting full sequences of these like deepest living fish. And it seems to be really good quality. They managed to get a lot of really good sequences. Because I, I sort of like the ecology and the sort of how these animals live part of it. I really enjoyed what they could tell about the yap snail fish relative to shallow water fishes. It really revealed some of the adaptations that they they had for living deep. So they found more genes for DNA repair. They found more copies of the gene that makes TMAO, which I'm not sure if we've spoken about. Basically, it's a, it's a molecule that helps proteins cope with high pressure. So it stops them getting full of water. It stops them getting crushed. They also found some really interesting stuff about how the precursors for TMAO, the fish can't produce them, but they're produced by the gut bacteria. And that's mm. fascinating. Then it got into like perception stuff, which I, I really enjoyed because this, this is what I find interesting. But they, they have two copies of the gene for sour taste receptors, but they've lost the genes for bitter taste. Yes, this was, this was very interesting. <laughs> yes, the TMAO genes, they were probably quite expected because TMAO is quite a well-studied phenomenon in deep sea fish. And that's really nicely supported all the all that we knew about it. But the sensory stuff is wild. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, what? We were talking last time about like what you can do with genetics and this this is amazing. But I've just never thought about it before. When we've been on a boat, it's always just been like, what is the smelliest bait fish that we can use? <laughs> it never occurred to me that they would taste it. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't they? That fish would have preferential taste for certain things. Or completely lose a whole elements of taste. They were maybe saying that this was due to their restricted diet because they, they mm. found only Hirondelius gigas, a, a type of amphipod in the mm. stomachs. Mackenzie Geringer has done some, some gut content analysis in the past. They do tend to 
eat mainly amphipods. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of amphipods down there, but they do have a slightly broader diet than that. They do have polychaetes and, and other little invertebrates as well. Yeah, they really seem to like these amphipods. So are amphipods, are they not bitter, but they are sour? <laughs> you know, I don't want to try and let you know, but I am really interested. Something I've also never considered before, that they would taste of anything. That I know is not true, because <laughs> whenever we do a public talk, one of the questions, it's become a trope actually, we joke about it, but one of the questions we always get is, are you going to eat them? What do they taste like? It's usually the supergiant amphipod that gets that response. It was just like, oh, it's like a big shrimp. No, we, we, we haven't eaten these incredibly valuable samples that are totally unique. But maybe we should have. Just one. <laughs> just one. And just go, oh, it's really sour. <laughs> but I wonder how like th- how that would taste to us versus this fish. What if they are sour and bitter? Overwhelmingly bitter. And you can only enjoy them if you can't taste bitter. Exactly. So maybe we were like, these are disgusting. Why did we do this? And those hadal sailfish are just like, what are you talking about? These are totally delicious. Few others as well. A few other interesting little tidbit. They had uh, fewer olfactory, fewer smell genes, which I was quite surprised at because I I'm pretty sure they use odor to find our bait. They do tend to arrive from down current, uh, but I thought that was really interesting. And then there was some interesting stuff with the eyes. They have degenerated, but the pigment that they do possess is sensitive to about. 480 to 485 nanometers, which is pretty close to bioluminescence. So the the eyes are less functional, they're they're less useful, but they are geared towards responding to probably the only source of light down there, which is bioluminescence. That makes sense. Eyes are really expensive and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So if you can get away without having them, they cost a lot of resources to make they're very vulnerable to parasites. And, and so if you don't need them, eyes disappear really quickly, which is why it's interesting that so many deep sea fish still have them. So they are obviously still useful because the, the blind cave fish, it looks like they lost their eyes multiple times very, very quickly. And they're a great comparison to the deep sea because it just goes to show that it's, it's not as comparable as you'd imagine. The, there's very different things shaping the blind cave creatures versus the deep sea animals. Yeah, but then you would think if it was just a case of like the deeper you go, the darker it is, therefore the less need there is to see in general. But actually in a lot of deep sea animals, they actually have a really big expansion in these genes. They have multiple, multiple copies. I think maybe there's like a level of that when there is a lot of bioluminescence, my understanding is, is that by the time you get down to sort of trench depths, it's not common in the way that it is in the sparkly twilight. So. Yeah, that's what we think so far. There mm. seems to be a reduction in bioluminescence as you get deeper, and it's never been observed in the Hadal zone, but we're pretty sure it's there. It's just not as sparkly twinkly as it is a bit shallower. I think a lot of them as well, the eyes are becoming bioluminescence detectors rather than resolving an image. Mm. So you'll, you'll quite often see the retina still has pigment and it's still responding to the frequency of bioluminescence, but like the lens and the focusing apparatus are all quite degenerate. So I think they're, I don't think they're really seeing things. I think it's like hotter, colder. I think they can see light in this direction rather than resolve what it is. Uh, to be honest, I think if you're totally relying on bioluminescence, that's that's kind of how it is. You're just looking at general shapes and movement. Depending on your size, if you're something small and you see something sparkly, you should try and run away from it. And if you're something big and you see something sparkly, you should probably try and eat it. And that's all all information you need to know is that it's over there. (laughs) 
Good and bad things are sparkly, which is, mm. it sounds horrible to live at those depths where it's just like, oh, something sparkly. Wait, how sparkly? <laughs> <laughs> is it good sparkly or is it bad time sparkly? <laughs> how much of the deep sea interaction is just two animals hurtling at each other in the hope that they're the bigger one? <laughs> oh, it must, that's just it. You're most all of it. Around. But then what kind of perception do you have? Like, do you know what size you are in relation to other things? Yeah, you've never seen yourself. There's no mirrors in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I guess if they're sensing something moving, is it like a big swoosh or a little swoosh? And I guess if, if it's a little swoosh, you're like, nah, maybe it's something I can eat because it's probably something small and twinkly. But if you sort of get like a, I don't know, like a big wave feeling off it, you're like, maybe I should just back out of that one. Yeah, lateral line and all of those long whispery filaments are sort of mm -hmm. whiskering. And the final story, there's an area called the Langseth Ridge, which is a permanently ice-covered area of the Arctic. And a team were investigating this with a towed camera system. And they found the whole area was covered in dense demo sponges. Basically, demo sponges are like 90% of sponges. They have spongin, which is like a, a modified form of collagen, and it's flexible. And then they have silicaceous, so made of silicon spicules. So they have this flexible protein and then these little hard parts that give them their structure and give them their shape. And when they were looking back at the videos, it really looks like these sponges have been moving and leaving little trails of these spicules behind them, like a snail trail. Really like a snail trail. It really is. They look like the garden <laughs> slugs. And these things can live for like hundreds of years. So I dread to think actually how fast this movement is. And they have no muscles. They have no like means of locomotion or locomotory structures. Although this has been reported in encrusting sponges. So the ones that grow over things like a mat, apparently they show a little bit of movement, but they're quite structurally different. These are the big vase-shaped sponges, the big sort of open ones. And yeah, they're trundling around the seabed. Not super small distances either. You can like see its whole life trailing yeah, behind it's it. It's been 200 years. <laughs> it's such a... A wild card paper. They're running about when we're not looking. Like a Toy Story, but with yes. sponges. Yes. <laughs> They're behind the camera. So like all the, we're watching all the fish at the front. <laughs> and all these sponges are running around in the background. I can move. I don't have any bustles. <laughs> yeah, don't ask me how. Oh, that's secret. So a few possible reasons for this is moving to improve food acquisition. So moving to where they can filter more food from the water and the dispersal of juveniles. So I think quite a few of them seem to be juveniles and then they kind of move away from the parent in order to set up shop. And they go in a gap year, basically. They go and discover themselves but it probably takes about a decade. It's a gap century. <laughs> They're in no rush. They're Arctic sponges. Nothing fast happens in the Arctic. They can take their time. And they, they weren't just sliding down the slopes or anything like that, because it seems that most of them were moving uphill, which would make sense if it was a feeding thing, if they wanted to get up into the water current and uh, away from the boundary layer. And like you can see from some of the papers, some of them are moving in, in multiple directions. So it can't just be that they've, they're all just sort of sliding. That's what led me to the thing that really blew my mind with it. You know, if they do tend to go uphill and if there is changes in direction, then they're responding to something. And how is that coordinated? It's a sponge. They're slime <laughs> mold that can solve mazes. And I'm like, I don't understand how you're doing that. And why are you doing a better job than me when I have a brain? This is not fair. <laughs> Say if it's about food, if it's about getting up and filtering in the current, the part that's getting the stimulus, the part that 
is knowing that it's better in this direction than this direction is quite far away from the part doing the moving. Yeah, but it's like jellyfish. How have they been so successful for so long? And you're like, I don't understand what you're doing. Like, where are you going? <laughs> is this enough for you? Are you happy? Yeah. How have you come to these decisions? Yeah, they're like three lines of code. Yeah. It's cold, move left. Okay. <laughs> I don't want them to like come up from the Arctic because I feel like they could take over. If they started thinking, it could get dangerous. I like how you just go, it's immediately malicious. It's immediately, they're after us. Nothing good comes from the deep sea, Tom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we know this. We should stop angering it. We should stop crashing things into it and stealing things. Heart loves us, truly. Natural history collections are immensely important to the scientific community. Since you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in science and so have no doubt visited a natural history museum. But the elements that are on display are just the tip of an enormous iceberg. There is a great deal going on behind the scenes. Natural history museums are not just a repository of incredibly valuable specimens. They're also a repository of incredibly valuable people. Talented people, and in my experience, incredibly generous people who will give a great deal of their time and energy to help you with your science. The two people we're talking to on this episode have, both in the past, put me up for, well, over a week at a time. They've allowed me to access the collection, they've given me a desk, given me a microscope, and basically been really good company and uh, an excellent guide along the way. And they've done everything they can to aid me in the question I was trying to answer at that time. They're scattered all over the world, and when we collect new samples through our work, once we've done the initial analysis that we need, we always try and deposit them in a natural history museum close to where they were captured, so that the nation's natural heritage is preserved within their institutions as well. These museums form a massive international interconnected network, basically like an interlibrary loan. You can request a specimen and these museums will move specimens and loan specimens between themselves. So this episode is very much my homage to natural history collections and they're one of my favourite altruistic elements of, of the scientific fraternity. I'm joined by James McLean, Senior Curator of Fishes at the Natural History Museum in London. Uh, thanks for coming on, James. Uh, thanks, Tom. It's a great honour. The building where I spend most of my time is called the Darwin Centre, and that's where we keep all the pickled things, the things that are usually in alcohol or formalin. But we also have a huge dry collection as well. So a lot of the, the early collecting in the early 19th century and earlier than that, they, would, they wouldn't, wouldn't be able to sort of pickle things in the fields. They would, they would just dry things out and make them into these sort of skins and bring those back. So a lot of our very early things are just like sort of crispy half fishes. <laughs> Whether we have skeletons as well. So lots of different kinds of preparations, but the bulk of the, the collection is uh, in spirit, yeah. We, we, we reckon, again, it's a bit of an estimate, but we think we've got about a million fish if you counted every single individual fish in our collection, it'd be something like that. Because, I mean, so, some jars have got hundreds in them, so it does all add up. It's like being a librarian with dead fish instead of books. So it's not only we look after them, they've all got to be perfectly arranged. And, you, and the, the fundamental bottom line is, can you find what you're looking for? Yeah, it's, it's sort of equal parts care of fragile items, basically, and then their cataloging and their organization. So it, it is a, a meat library, essentially. It is, it is a meat library, yeah. And, and my librarians, we, we have to help people to, to use that library. If you've got a good use for a dead fish, if you get in touch, um, we're going to help you out. And it doesn't have to be science. I would say that sort of 90% of what I do uh, is to be 
um, looking after scientists, but also we have artists. Um, we do a lot of um, things like education. So we provide specimens for exhibitions and we occasionally do things with school groups. And so that's, that's a really, that's one of my favorite things to do with our specimens is to do talks and, and presentations. And, and the deep sea stuff just lends itself to so many different opportunities. So for example, a friend was involved with the, there was a, a feminist festival at South Bank called Women of the World. And she got in touch and said, have you got any sort of animal stories with a feminist slug? Said, oh, yes, I have. <laughs> the delivers. And yeah, so I went along with the, the anglerfish again and said, you know, you've got this big female fish. She's got like um, massive fangs and a light. And she sort of goes out there and lives her life. And uh, this tiny little insignificant thing who in some species is so pathetic that if he doesn't find a female, he will die. Um, and then just sort of latches on and just gets absorbed and becomes basically like a little It's organ. just a heat-seeking testicle. It doesn't have any superfluous. It is, it's yeah. not a fully functional animal without the female. No, nostrils and testicles. That's all <laughs> he's got, really, yeah. It's great how you touched upon, in much like a library, how this is a public resource and how willing you guys are to help anyone out who needs access to this information, needs access to these specimens. I mean, th that's how we ended up having a good chat and getting to know each other was you put me up for a week. You gave me a bench and a microscope and access to the collection. And it was an incredible resource that I'm, I'm massively sort of grateful for. I'm, I'm a big proponent of the, of the natural history sort of network. So was, was that when you were describing your new species? Was that what that was yes, for? Yes. So, and again, talking about that camaraderie, multiple other collections had sent specimens to you in order for me to have a look at. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. We got to spend a, a bit of a day wandering the halls. I just felt very welcome and very helped. It was, uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> I love my job so much because you get to experience all these different things. And every time someone like yourself comes in, uh, you get to help them out. You get to take part in the demon in a little way in something that's really interesting and exciting. But also it is a two-way street because everybody that comes in and uses our collection almost always impart some little bit of knowledge. I mean, for you, for example, with you, it was the, the pharyngeal teeth of your little um, snailfish. Yes. Looks like a little pink blob. But then when you strip away the flesh, it's got these amazing cutting teeth <laughs> in its <laughs> no, this throat. cute little fish with this mill in the back of its throat. But it, it, it just a lot of it goes back to what uh, Heather was talking about in the other episode about when you were describing something new. It has to come back to, to specimens because... If you want to be absolutely certain that what you are describing is a new thing, you have to find all the things that are similar and then show why your thing mm. is different. And if you can't do that conclusively, your new species isn't really going to stand up yeah. properly. So that, that's one of the most fundamental things we do, really, is for the new species descriptions. All of the more modern techniques, unless you can tie all that data back to this specimen, it, it loses part of its cohesion, it loses part of its power, it needs to have almost this this auditing trail, basically. You need to be able to trace all this back to this physical specimen that someone else can look at and say, actually, you were wrong. Well, absolutely. The, the specimen is the sort of the final sort of arbiter truth, really, because it, going back to DNA, if you have like a, a sequence and you want to see what it is and you go on to GenBank or whatever to compare it with other sequences, those sequences will all come from specimens. And if there's something there that doesn't look quite right, then at the end of the day, you have to go, well, let's go back to the specimen, just check that hasn't been misidentified. And th this is, I guess, going to bring us on to what type specimens are. 
So whenever somebody does describe a new species, those specimens that are used in that description are called the types. And there's usually, well, nowadays there's one in particular, which is the, the primary type, which is called a holotype. And quite often you have, if you're lucky enough to get like a whole load of them, you have other ones which are called paratypes. And they then stand as the definitive example of that species. They're called types because they're supposed to be typical of that species. So if there's any debate at all about what that species is, that's what you have to go back to. And if your thing isn't the same as those, then it's not the same species, if that makes I, sense. I find the types, I don't know, philosophically quite fascinating because the the human idea of cataloging and giving names to and structuring the natural world, basically, and then this very physical, very real specimen, it's this weird merging because it, in a very legal sense, that specimen, that physical body represents this scientific name, as we as scientists have, have sort of designated. And I love that merging of the Absolutely. two. It's, it's it, the physical manifestation. Yeah, and it's final. There's no argument about it at all. The type is the type, and that's it. But it isn't always trouble-free, though, because sometimes you will have somebody's got a type series, and there's actually different species within that. That's a bit of a headache. And then you can occasionally have something where there are different species within a type series, and one of those is a new species. So you can have a, a fish that's actually a type of two different species, and you can have types that are just in horrible condition. So we've got some stuff at the museum that's it's very, very old. It's falling to bits. But it's still the type, and it's what you've got to use. Like a lot of things, it's not perfect, but it's the best we've got, I think. <laughs> A lot of those early species descriptions are really vague, and they can be just a couple of sentences. They won't mention a specific specimen. And then you've got to say, well, I have a specimen here, which was in the collection of the person that described the species, and they would have had it at that time. It's possibly <laughs> the type. It's possibly the one they had there, but can't say for sure. And one of the, the things I have to bear in mind every day is that if something isn't certain, I cannot, I've got to be so careful yeah. not making up any new information because I'm just a part in a chain. So the, the Natural History Museum has been going in various forms since like the early 1800s based on collections from even before then. So there's all these people been looking after this stuff and I'm here now and I'm trying to make sense of what they've been doing. And every single thing that I do, every little label that I write, I've got to think, well, somebody's going to be reading that yeah. 150, 200, hopefully, years after I'm dead. And is what I've done going to make sense to them? And if I go, I think this is the type, am I going to give them enough evidence to go, okay, yes, that maybe is, or are they going to go, no, that's rubbish. So it's, it's a really, you've got to show you're working for every little thing that you do. Even if it's, it's screamingly really obvious, if there's even a, a hint of a doubt. And things you do all sort of automatically. I can even remember digging through old journals and someone had, had cited something as uh, volume 11. And I could not find it. And it was so old. It was Roman numerals. It was two. But oh. That's so easy to copy down wrong and just instinctively do it. You know, you're dealing with things hundreds of years old. And if you disrupt that chain, like you say, you, you are the sort of current custodian. custodian. That's or, it. Yeah. That's what I'm looking and, for. And occasionally you'll have a situation where somebody will come in and go, do you have the type of this? And don't know. And you go and have a look in the collection, you rummage around and you find something. And you go, okay, well, this is it. And you say, well... You can't say for sure, and you go, but it, but it has to be because of this, and it's like that's not enough. <laughs> and you have to say to them, look, you you cannot call that the type with with absolute certainty, and it makes some people very unhappy. <laughs> Why can't you just make it simple? But yeah, it's a it's a huge sense of responsibility, really, to to sort of think of all those people. Like you know, you write a label and you put it in a jar, and think nobody will 
maybe look at that till I'm dead. But as long as they'll understand it when they do. Yeah, I, I think we've we've sort of touched upon now the real purpose of a of a natural history collection and of a natural history museum. Because I think a lot of us interact with them. It's one of these great places where working sort of rock face science comes into contact with the general public and they can sort of be part of that and mingle with it. But I think it's really interesting to find out just what a powerful resource they are and just what their enormous purpose is. So it's not just a a collection of cool things and it's not a tourist attraction, although both of those things are true. It is really core to, to our science. So could you maybe sum up what is required of a, of a natural history collection? What, it, what is it achieving within science? Well, well funnily enough, I, I made a little list of things today. And just leaving science aside for the time being, which we will come back to, there, there is a few other things that it, it does as well. So because a lot of it is so old, there's inevitably a huge historical component to it. So we have things from, you know, famous expeditions like Challenger from when Charles Darwin went round on the Beagle, even fish going back to Captain Cook's expeditions. So those are interesting historically uh, as well as scientifically. So we occasionally have people coming in looking at them for that reason. And then I think one of my my favorite um, jobs, it doesn't happen that often, is we get artists who want to see something, what it looks like. I had somebody who was doing illustrations for a children's book and uh, wanted to see what some deep sea fish oh, look cool. like. And I love doing that because you then see it through different eyes. You get something out and a scientist will look at it one way, but an artist will see it in a completely different way. I think my favorite was a woman who came in and drew a life-size drawing of our giant squid specimen in squid ink. But then miscellaneous things that sort of crop up. So for example, quite a long time ago now, we had Speedo swimwear, who were very interested in shark skin. And so some of our sharks have got these little sort of squares cut out of them where Speedo swimwear took <laughs> bits away to sort of analyze to see if they can make a super swimsuit. Even things like crime scene investigations, because, you know, there'll be some bit of evidence that has a little animal in it. And that animal can tell you so much I mean, I think one of the more macabre things, we had a researcher who came in, he was looking at sort of these strange markings that were found in some people who there'd been some terrible plane crash. And there were some bodies in the ocean that had been there for some time. And they all had these circular wounds on them. So it turned out to be cookie cutter sharks. Oh, no. Oh, that's grim. Yeah. So you just you just cannot tell what people are going to... Um... No such thing as an ordinary day. That's wild. <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, I mean, just today, for example, I, I came in, I fed the flesh-eating beetles. Of course. Uh, so we have these colonies of beetles that we use to make skeletons, and I've been looking after them. Um, so yeah, I did that. And then I x-rayed some snake heads for a researcher in India. And then I took two sharks from an extinct species up to the photographer for a researcher in America. So yeah, every day is, is sort of different. You sort of, <laughs> it's so varied. Yeah, you, you get in, you open up your email, and you just do not know what you're going to expect. And I think one of my favorite science things is a researcher at, a, at the University of Bath who is incredibly interested in nostrils and uh, the way that fluid moves around inside a fish nostril. And this is something I never, ever thought about at all. And uh, it, it's absolutely fascinating. So you, you get the, the fish's head and you, you do a really, really highly detailed scan of it. And then you recreate the fish's head. You 3D print it and make a little model of the nostril. And then you can put it in a flow tank. The, the idea is that this could be used as a sort of uh, biotechnology to ultimately make some sort of underwater device that can then detect things. 
you can make a sort of like an underwater robot that could tell where an oil leak is coming from or something like that. But that's the kind of sort of stuff that just comes out of the blue. And uh, is a, it's a constant delight to be just continually stimulated with all these interesting novel ideas. You, you get these little glimpses into someone's incredibly specialized, incredibly niche life. And you, oh, yes. you're almost a tourist. You sort of pass through it for a couple of weeks and then you're out the other side. Absolutely. And you're, you're back on speedos. Just so many different worlds. I've just got like a tiny little bit of experience of. My other gushing love for natural history museums is they are also a collection of incredibly talented people especially within specific sort of groups of animals the world experts on particular groups are often behind the scenes in these institutions oh yeah i mean and that's a, another perk of the job if i find anything i i know the person to speak to it's such an amazing privilege to be part of that that world even just a little bit and to have a sort of that knowledge at your basically at your fingertips yeah there's worry at, at the moment really in that that knowledge isn't getting passed on there aren't people taking this for the sort of next generation and, and we, we might lose a lot of these taxonomic skills. Well, that's what I really hope that we're doing a little bit when we're doing the things with the schools. I mean, I get kids coming up to me after talks who just know so much. Yeah. Well, what I really like doing as well is if you're giving a talk to kids is to sort of go, yeah, 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 we know this bit. And then here's something that we have no explanation yeah, for. Yeah, they love that. And then they love that. <laughs> so one of the things that they particularly, I always get a good response for is talking about great white sharks. White sharks go down beyond a thousand meters occasionally. I think tagged ones have been seen to do these huge big mm. dives down and nobody knows why. But it, that really gets her brains going, definitely. Well, to show that it's not done, that, you know, we, we don't know everything and there's there's room then for them as an adult to come and figure that yeah. out. Yeah, science is still creeping forward. It's still Absolutely. on. It's not finished. So there, there's stuff for them to do. Hello. One of my, my favourite bits of science, actually, which happened at the Natural History Museum, was um, going back to the, the um, anglerfish again, was the, the, the first person to actually say that this little fish here and this big fish here are the same was a guy at the Natural History Museum called Charles Tate Reagan. And I think it was either 1929 or 1930, around about then. And using specimens that he'd acquired, he was able to show that this little sort of weird thing that it was attached to, I think it was a warty sea devil, it was Ceratius. He had one with a male attached, and he was able to dissect it and go, this is a male fish, this is a female fish. And then that suddenly explained a whole load of things, because prior to that, the, the males have been classified in a completely different family. Yeah. I mean, I think people had worked out they were a kind of anglerfish, but they were some sort of weird free-swimming species. Um, and then when Charles Tate Reagan discovered this, then it was, oh, and then that's, that's when it all sort of fell into place. That would have been entirely dissection-based, yeah. really thorough, methodical, just really good detective work, some, some good biological detective work to figure that out. It is. And again, you've got to have the specimen for that. So this is um, going back to another thing that came up, I think, in one of your other podcasts is the idea of like you could have a, a photograph to represent a new species, which isn't really good enough because if there was anything unusual about it, you've only got like one side of it. There's enough to show that, say, this is definitely different, this is definitely new, and then there's enough to mm. be functional and useful to future generations as a holotype. Other things turn up. Hundreds of years down the line, we know that actually it's all about these two gill rakers and whether they're present or not. 
and it's it's not on a photograph. And so that chain of knowledge that you're passing forward over hundreds of years, that chain breaks then. And I, I love the idea that these things that are over 100 years old are going to be useful in perpetuity, because at the end of the day, if you've got some issue, that's what you're going to have to go back to. Beyond species and things like that, you, you can now go back to these collections and well, when did microplastics start turning up in things, gut contents? And when do we see the traces of the nuclear blasts and things like that? But well, that's very funny you should say that, because that, that's something that I've been looking at recently, uh, a woman called Alex McGoran, who's been looking at plastic and fishes in the Thames. And I said to her, well, it'd be really interesting to see if there's anything in these, these fish that we brought back from right out in the middle of the Atlantic. And she found plastic fibers in two thirds of them. Wow. Um, and then the, the next step then, as you say, would be we've got like historical collections. We've got lots of things from various places that we could actually go back in time for one spot and then see what's been changing. Because the, the big thing will be when people started using washing machines. Yes. Initially, apparently cotton fibers can be detected. So you get them to begin with. And then you get the plastics coming in. We can tell the types of plastic as well. So you almost see the different plastic technology as it creeps through the timeline. Yeah. And then there's persistent organic molecules that tend to saturate the plastic. So our old fire retardants and lots of chemicals that are banned now yeah. are still showing up, certainly the deep sea stuff, because it's so it's such a time lag. And then we've got this lovely baseline data from like the 1800s, which should be pretty much pure. Mm. Well, one of my favorite stories recently at the museum, which isn't fish related, is with the whale skeleton that we have suspended from the ceiling in our central hall. And they did this fantastic um, study on that where they were looking at isotopes. And you can tell where an animal has been by the isotopes that it's sort of laid down in its bone. So they can actually see all the places this whale had been in its lifetime. Oh, wow. And it, and I think, if I remember rightly, it was born near the equator. And then as it grows up, it goes to Antarctica and then comes back again and does its journey like six or seven times. And then it starts to behave quite strangely. And then shortly after that, it gets washed up in Ireland. And then the really tragic thing, and I, I don't know if they've confirmed this or not, but I think another thing they've been able to pick up from the bones is that it was probably pregnant and that it was maybe moving to, I don't know, it was trying to carve somewhere and then it got into some kind of distress. But things like that, you just wouldn't have thought was, was possible. That is incredible. Like that level of detail from, yeah. I mean, how long has that been dead? That's an old... Oh, I think it's 1900 and something. But yeah, it's, it's over 100 years old. Yeah. I think that's another thing worth touching upon in that, again, going back to the photography and things like that as well. There's going to be technology in the future that's going to be telling us more about these old things within the collection. There's going to be some new technique that's actually super revealing and having access to a fish from the 1900s is going to be incredibly valuable in ways we can't even imagine right now. I, I cannot oh, believe absolutely. they decoded the life of a whale from its very dried, very old bones. And, uh, I mean, nobody would have predicted the DNA stuff. And that's been a, a revelation. The thing that I'm particularly enjoying at the moment is CT scanning, which is another relatively new thing. And what you can do with that now. So there's another nice story. 
so we got this this quite bizarre anglerfish, which I originally thought was uh, a specimen of Gigantactis, which is called a whip nose anglerfish. It's quite a long, thin one, and it has a very sort of pointed nose. And there's amazing film of them actually. They they sort of are they the headstanders? They are, yes. And and yeah. It, oh, cool. I like them. And it, that's another nice thing is that of course a specimen does have limitations. It's only when you see film of them in real life you, you suddenly see them doing things that you wouldn't, wouldn't have occurred to you. And so that that's a nice example. That's of that. what that structure's for. Yeah, who <laughs> do that? So it was one of those. I thought put a picture of it on Twitter and I said, "Here's a specimen of Gigantactus." And like two years later, some guy got in touch with me and said, "Well." Are you sure? It looks a bit like it might be um, Brinkactus to me. And I thought, well, I'd never, never even heard of this genus. So I, I got out my big anglerfish book and sort of checked it out. And sure enough, it was. Brinkactus is super weird because it's, um, I think it's called the toothless whip nose. So it, it's in the same family as Gigantactus, but it, it's different because it has no teeth. It oh. is the only anglerfish that has no teeth. It has pharyngeal teeth. And it has, I think it's got two tiny little fangs at the tip of its pre-maxillae and the very sort of front of its top jaw, but nothing else. It's just got gums, but it has these sort of weird organs around its mouth, which nobody knows the, the function of. And there's been lots of speculation about the toothlessness. Well, all the ones that have been found had empty stomachs, so we don't really know what they're feeding on. But the one that we got is very, very fat. So we CT scanned it. The, um, the CT scanning man said, well, I think, I think I can see a little bit more, though. There's a guy called Vincent who's just amazing. He's just Oh, yeah, I got to he, work with him. He's brilliant. He's fantastic. And he said, I, I think there's some more stuff in there. So he did this scan that lasted, I think, 16 hours. And suddenly all this stuff appeared, three other fish in there at least. And we could see the otoliths and we could see bits of their jaws and we could see their spinal columns. They, they all seem to be uh, bristle mouths. So this isn't, the anglerfish isn't very ah. big. It's only about, I don't know. 130 millimeters long so that it's just been eating these these bristle mouths the other sort of knock-on thing that you can get from that now whereas if you find something really interesting that you can then just print it and the, the idea that at some point we'll be able to just put things online where people around the world can go well that's an interesting feature of that specimen and then just like print it out so you can be collaborating with someone on the other side of the planet and they're really interested in this really fragile specimen that will never make the trip and you can send them a, a digital holotype and they can explore to their heart's content without putting the sample at risk. I really like being able to extract otoliths. So one of the, the first anglerfish that I CT scanned was a, a, a big, fat, hairy anglerfish, which had something really considerable in its stomach. I remember this. This was in the news, wasn't it? Yeah, there, there was quite a bit of fuss about it when it came out because it was, it was quite a nice story. One of the first times that digitally you've been able to sort of dissect something and find out something about it with an anglerfish. The, the scan was so nice by looking at the otolith shape and by various other features that I could work out what the thing was inside. Yeah, so in, in the old days, you'd have had to sort of slit it open and have a look. But now you can just do that all digitally. Without damaging your, your specimen at all? Yeah. Just for the folks listening, otoliths are the ear bones of fish. They, they allow them to orientate themselves and, and sort of feel momentum and changes in speed. But they're these beautiful little disc-like bones floating in these fluid channels. So they're right deep in the skull, but they're really diagnostic. You can sort of tell different fish apart from the shape of these little otoliths. But because they're right deep in the skull, it can be quite destructive to retrieve them. We may have touched upon it already, but do you have some favourites within the collection, either for their sort of history or story or just because they're immensely cool? Ooh, um, 
I mean, we've got things like, for example, the two ships that James Clark Ross took to Antarctica, the the Erebus and Terror. Uh, we've got things that have been on board those ships, and they're, they're, they're quite famous because they were the ones that ended up getting lost in the Northwest Passage with Sir John Franklin. We've got a really amazing archive at the museum. So a lot of the, the things that we've got have got um, letters and things that uh, accompany them. I'm quite into Arctic exploration, and there's a, another two Scottish guys, both called John, called John Richardson and John Ray, who've both been as lots of specimens. And they both went off in search of John Franklin in the sort of late 1840s. And John Richardson, he was quite old then. He was, I think he was in his 50s. So he came back and John Ray stayed out there and they corresponded. And we've got some of the letters between the two. And so we've got a letter from John Ray to John Richardson. It was written in like 1749. And what he's done is he was running out of paper. So he's written down the way and then he's turned the page 90 degrees and then written across it again. So it's still readable. It's nice as well because there's little references to Dickens and there's a bit when he said, oh, I was going to try and get you the skeleton of a bear, but I sent my men out to shoot it and they got scared and ran away. So I'm sorry, <laughs> no bear for you. So stuff like that, I love. But then when it comes to actual specimens, I think the anglerfish have got to be my favourites. I mean, that one that I mentioned where we scanned it um, and looked at the otoliths, the, the, the hairy anglerfish, that's definitely uh, a good one. And we've got a great big football fish, Hemantolophus, uh, and that, that one gets used all the time. And it brings so much joy as well. So we, we occasionally have sort of like evening events where the public can come in and talk to a scientist and we talk, talk about what we do. And there was one event where I was holding it and somebody said, could I touch that? And I said, okay, well, I've got a big box of gloves here. If you don't mind putting the gloves on, you can you can hold it. So this is a, a big sort of brown, leathery thing about the size of a football. <laughs> Pretty hideous looking with a big branched lure coming out the top of it and these tiny little sort of piggy eyes and lots of teeth. And so this, this person put the gloves on and I handed them the, the football fish and they were just so happy. Yeah, it was a lovely thing to see. Very fond of that specimen. We still feel a really personal connection. It came up a little bit with chatting about the sub, the impact it's having on people seeing the deep sea firsthand. But like you describing things like handwriting, things like handwriting from someone long, long dead who you admire. And even when I'm writing now, you know, in the scientific publication, a bit of me is thinking like, is somebody going to read my words in 200 years time? Am I talking to someone I can't even imagine right now? And yeah, and, and touching a deep sea fish. We, we try and do something quite similar. We've got a, a bucket of very popular, good for outreach deep sea fish. And it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't become real until you can touch it, until you can you can interact with it. And suddenly this alien, totally separate, totally, or let's not even think about that environment, suddenly it becomes very, very personal. And I think it's incredibly powerful. And you've obviously experienced that in the room as well. Like the, these people were changed and now they have maybe affinity for the deep sea and they're excited by it. Oh, definitely. And I, I love it when you can reach people and you suddenly engage them, as you say. And I've occasionally given tours to people who are visually impaired and to give one of them a specimen and then let them sort of experience it. So we had some dried seahorses and I was talking about them and then I sort of handed it to the, this guy. And again that sort of suddenly he could visualize it in his mind i guess of what this thing looked like and felt like it's just great being able to do things like that that's fantastic and yeah it seems so like of course of course of course he should have the opportunity to touch that and and to experience that that's oh i really like that hello 
This is oceanographer Don Walsh, and I'd like to talk a little bit about collecting marine specimens. Collection of marine specimens is an important aspect of marine biology research. It permits generations of scientists to study them many years after the samples have been collected and preserved. It's not unusual to routinely work on samples that are well more than a century old. However, there's another side to the story. Sometimes you collect things you don't want. Here I'm referring to marine biofouling, communities of organisms that collect and grow on a ship's bottom. In fact, whole biofouling can be created by over 1,700 species that will happily form complex communities on a ship's underwater body. This fouling can increase drag or friction on a moving hull by up to 60%. Therefore, ship speed can be reduced by up to 10%. And since the propulsion system has to work harder to maintain a desired speed, this results in increased fuel consumption. Fuel consumption is an important cost factor since fuel costs represent nearly half of global marine transport costs. Globally, marine biofouling adds nearly $6 billion a year to the cost of ship operations. And for the U.S. Navy alone, it costs them over $1 billion per year in increased fuel bills. Also, fouling can damage ship's hull and machinery. For example, these, these communities of uh, organisms can actually create damage on the metal surfaces of the hull. And more importantly, it can partially block cooling water intakes and discharges for proper onboard machinery operation. There are several anti-fouling methods used, such as toxic coatings or super-slick paint systems. However, many toxic bottom paints have adverse effects on nearby life in the sea and have been banned. Slick paints make it difficult for fouling organisms to adhere to the hull. They just can't stick to the very smooth surface. And some types even slough off taking the critters with them. All of these systems are expensive and require periodic replacement every few years. While special coating systems are important, a most effective removal job is done by hand while vessels in port. In a former life, I owned a commercial diving company, and we made a pretty good living doing hull cleanings on commercial ships. Basically, we used a diver-operated scrubber machine with rotating brushes, much like the large floor scrubbers and polish machines that are used in factories and homes. But we had to be fast underwater as a freshly scrubbed bare metal surface would begin to attract organisms within hours of cleaning. So prompt recoding of the area was important to stop new growth. Also in a previous life, I was a submariner in the Navy where hull falling is a particularly bad problem, considering that the entire external surface of the submarine is subject to uh, falling, not just the below waterline areas of a conventional ship. And there were times when our missions had us operating totally submerged for up to two months or longer, and we collect all sorts of unwelcome visitors over the entire hull. The result was decreased underwater speed, meaning less submerged range for us. In addition, the fouling could form an acoustic blanket so our sonar systems could not hear as well, and that's not a good thing for operations where passive listening was all important. Upon returning to port, the uh, topside part of the sub would dry out, and you were treated to the awful smell of decaying and dying organisms that were stuck all over your hull and exposed to uh, air. Prompt cleaning was a priority, as none of us liked being near submarines in this condition. Well, that's the story of why this kind of marine specimen collection 
is not very popular with ship owners. That's all for now, and thanks for listening. I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Stewart, Assistant Curator of Vertebrates at the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa. I, well, you've got all of vertebrates to play with, but I know you're like me. I know you have a favorite. Oh, yes. You're, you're yeah. a fish guy. I'm a fish guy. I was a fish guy since I was about two. <laughs> I think it was the same for me. We've sailed together a couple of times out in the Kamadic mm-hmm. Trench, yep. and a lot of the specimens we collected a part of the museum's collection. It's really great to, to get this material from the deeper parts. It's just so difficult to get to. So I got to spend some time in, well, there's the, there's the beautiful museum itself as open to the public and as, as a display. And then there is the bunker, <laughs> which is where yes. you reside and where most of the collection resides. Can you, can you describe that building? Because it, it was fascinating. It's repurposed, isn't it? It's, yes, it was a um, combination of repurpose and new build. And now we've got a wonderful state-of-the-art facility that holds the collection at constant 18 degrees, plus or minus one degree Celsius, and a relative humidity of 55, plus or minus five, all year. And it's monitored for alcohol, fire, and all that. So it's just wonderful. Absolutely fabulous. And, and what was it originally? Because the earthquakes were a worry as well, weren't they? It's a- the, um, the actual building we're in is the old city works building. Now, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Wellington topography at all, but there's an awful lot of hills. But right in the middle, there is a truncated volcanic plug, euphemistically called Mount Cook. But the reinforcing of this building that we're in now goes right the way down 60 feet into a larval dike that came off this old volcanic plug. So it's as strong as anything. It's built to take a nine which is comforting. And in the big shakes that we've had um, over the last few years around New Zealand, I had a couple of whiteboard pens. I think one rolled off the very narrow tray. A filing cabinet came out a couple of <laughs> centimetres. Bruce, I know, had a... a Devastating. A, yeah, a Bruce had a screw standing on its head and that didn't fall over. Uh, so it's, it's really, really <laughs> soft. You get the impression. It's the this place thing, to be. This, this, yeah. This, yeah, this place is the place to be in the big one. And we're well above the tsunami zone. If we get a tsunami hitting us there, we've got bigger problems. Both location and, and how it's built has just been fabulous for us. It was one of my first experiences of a, of a really modern collection. And it wasn't sort of what you maybe visualize in your, in your head. So I've, I've gone into this bunker. It does feel like something sci-fi. And then there's these, these huge rooms, really, really climate controlled. So there's a weird sort of stillness to them. Quietness, you know, it's a bustling city outside. And then there's these rows upon rows of stainless steel sarcophagi. Like mm-hmm. it, it totally looks sci-fi. It totally looks like where Umbrella is growing their bioweapons. Yes. <laughs> this gantry crane above you, which allows you to, to lift these huge lids off and just wonders inside some, some huge specimens and some really unusual specimens, some unique stuff you guys have got there. We have made a, a real point of collecting large specimens and housing them. Our smallest tank is 250 litres, and we have some 50 of those. And our workhorse is a 500-litre tank. There's over 120 of those. And those tanks are mobile, so we can put them on a pellet jack, take them through to a workroom where there's fume extraction, remove the lid. The lid goes onto a great big sliding tray, like an oven tray, goes out of the way, and you can extract your specimen. The other room, which is the fixed tank room, we have our what we call the monster bins. There are eight tanks in there that range from 850 litres to 3,300 litres. 
And you've got a pair of gantries, half a ton rated, one to lift the lid because the largest tank, the lid alone weighs a quarter of a ton. And then the other gantry to lift the specimen. And we've got monstrous things in there. Uh, I've got a 115 kilo Queensland groper. I've got a quarter ton sharp-tailed sunfish, quarter ton manta ray, 300 kilogram white shark. And my biggest is a three meter, 400 kilogram sleeper shark, which is the biggest that we can go to. And then of course the colossal squid, which is on display. We've had a few more of those come in. We've also got giant squid. We've got a leatherback turtle. We've got small whales, seals, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, um, big stuff we can handle. That's incredible. It's it's one hell of a collection. I remember we had a a little explore around there. You guys have got the Goliath hagfish as well, haven't you? The largest species of hagfish. Hagfish are fascinating. I I'm I have to admit I'm a, a relatively late arriver with hagfish, but the more I've studied them, the more I've come to absolutely love them. They're very good at what they do. They're, they're yes. very well built fish, <laughs> and they've been doing it for five hundred million years. So I'll do a little plug for our YouTube station. If you Google hagfish slime, you'll see our videos. It's a combination of the slime and the thread. The thread comes out as a tiny little skein about a tenth of a millimetre across, and it unravels to a line about 10 centimetres long. Amazingly, apparently, they never tangle, but as they unravel, they all interweave and, and form this dense mat. There is a lot of interest in the thread uh, from a commercial point of view because it's 70% the tensile strength of spider silk, but a much simpler molecule. So possibly it could be synthesised more easily than spider silk. And there is, believe it or not, interest in the slime as a thickening agent in food nice. coming to a yogurt puddle near you <laughs> yeah i'm thinking of those fizzy jelly sweets which i really like you know getting a good mm-hmm. good chew on that getting a good sort yeah. of bit of resistance yeah i think yeah. i heard about it you've been using clothes as well if you buy eel skin products that's hagfish brand new scalpel blade will only last about three hagfish yes the skin they wreck is so your gear. tough they wreck your gear. They're as tough as anything, but they produce the most beautiful, soft, pliable leather. Just north of New Zealand, there is the Kamatic Trench. Bottoms out at just over 10K, I think. I think it was about three or four expeditions in the end to there, and we uh, we all went to sea together as well. And I yes. think it was specimens collected there because we came very familiar with the Kamatic Trench snailfish. So yep. beyond 7,000 metres, there's... Uh, these lovely booming populations of these cute little snailfish, which I love that the, the toughest fish in the world are so cute and delicate looking. <laughs> and, and later on, it emerged that there were two species present, and the newer species is named after yourself, isn't it? Yes. Yes, that was David Stein at Oregon, who's a snailfish expert, and he, he sent me an email going, hey, I'm going to name this one after you, which is very humbling, it really is, uh, and most unexpected, And because, as you said, it was always assumed there was just the one species. But when we got that material, that was the first time in nearly 60 years that it had been seen a, as a specimen. Prior to that, it had only been the Danish caught material on the Galathea. Having um, having material and more material and material that has been well fixed and formal and, and then stepped through alcohol, this should last two, three hundred years. Do you have a, a favourite specimen in the collection? Do you have one that either you just have a soft spot for or it's just so immensely cool? I just love the deep sea fish because they have come up with so many bizarre answers to what I call the big three questions of life, which are, how do I find a meal? 
how do I avoid becoming somebody else's meal? And having successfully negotiated those two, how do I find a mate? And it, it just seems so different to the usual things we see on land and in the shallow waters. Seen, there's males and females with the lantern fish. They've got a slightly different configuration of the head photo fours. The work that uh, John Paxton did on the whale fishes, where they found that three different families constituted the juveniles, males and females yes. of one family. So that's like discovering that Mazdas, Toyotas and Hondas are in fact all Hondas. It's quite <laughs> incredible. They're completely structurally different, both the sexes totally. and, the, and the juvenile form. Yeah, yeah. The, the juveniles are called ribbon tails. They've got this ridiculous long caudal filament. The males are, used to be called big nose fishes. They just look like pug-nosed, weird little things. And the females were these gigantic whale fish. Yeah. Many sizes larger than the males. I find these really fascinating. Um, the Antarctic fish. I have a real love of fish, as you said right at the beginning, and it's been just such a privilege, really, to work in this field and to have done my life's passion as my job and seen the collection grow by over 450% since I started and include such things as the Antarctic fauna. Uh, we've got this incredible collection now from the Southern Ocean through good relationships with the seafood industry and the fisheries observers and a couple of expeditions that Niwa have mounted on their big ocean-going vessel, Tangaroa, which I was part of in 2008. That was just, oh, I go back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> loved it. I just loved it. Yeah, send the gear deeper. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing quite like having the gear come in and just seeing that there's something unusual in there. We were discussing it on a previous yeah. episode that I actually find that quite stressful because uh, you've got to do it justice. You realize how important this specimen is, realize how fragile it is, how quickly you've got to work, you've got to balance. Am I taking tissue samples? Am I taking photographs? You know, it's breaking down all the time. Yes. And so it's stressful, yes. but it is just wonderfully exciting at the same time. We've managed to, I guess, collect maximum information. Jeremy, my colleague, is, is wanting to start a stable isotope tissue bank. We've got now some 10,000 tissues linked to specimens in the collection. Carl photographs everything. If it's registered, it's tissue sampled. If it's tissue sampled, it's photographed. And this is one of the things that collections are so useful for. So you go back to your old collections and you line things up and you look again. All kinds of new techniques can be applied to old fishes. And it doesn't matter how old they are, so long as they've been well-preserved, you can get new information off them. In some cases, sadly, if the fish is extinct in the wild, then um, this is the only source of information. I'm liking seeing the modernization and the layers upon these collections because the, the fundamental unit is still the specimen, it's still the type. And yeah. now we can add the layer of a, a CT scan and X-rays yes. and new types of photography and gene sequencing. And all that cascades back to, it, it's about this library. It's about this catalog of traceability down to the type and down to these specifically registered specimens. So we were chatting on the last episode about how powerful genetics is, but it needs, it needs that grounding. It needs that anchor. And by your collection maintaining, here is the specimen. Here is its genetic code. Here is an X-ray. Here is a photograph. Here is one from 60 years ago. And here is one from last week. And that continuity is what allows really powerful science to come out of these collections. And being able to identify it in the field, because as much as I might say, where is it? Nobody has actually come up with the handy dandy pocket DNA analyzer yet. <laughs> so the angler 
in the field, the, the, the commercial fishermen on the boat, the fisheries officer at the wharf, the fishmonger, they've got to all be able to look at, at something and go, it is this species, it's not that species. And this is a common question and issue that happens everywhere. So these are all tools which help us sort of say, this is what defines species X and how it differentiates it from species A consistently, even though superficially you look at them and go, are they really different? And then you can produce the evidence to say, well, actually, yes, they are quite different. Let me show you. Or even worse, they're like totally different colors. And it's just like, no, no, ignore mm. the color. It's this ray here. If that's longer than that, <laughs> yes. it's this one. <laughs> and you're obsessed with, but this one's spotty and this one's stripy. No, ignore it. It's lying. <laughs> yes. yes, it's just variation. This is the question that taxonomists asked. Is what I'm looking at the difference between species or the variation within species? And often you can't know that easily until you've looked at a lot of material. And certainly DNA is a huge help with that. But at the end of the day, you still have to be able to tell them apart visually. The new techniques don't necessarily supplant the need for collections, having a specimen in a jar, a drum, a tank, um, whatever, and for scientists to be able to come back again and again and again and look at them, even the oldest ones. Talking about being able to recognize in the field and the importance of IDing an animal through its appearance, you guys published probably one of my favorite books, although to call it a single book is probably wrong. The the four-volume behemoth. The of, brick. Uh, <laughs> I use it for like self-defense. I have it under my pillow in case we have a home invasion, because I think it weighs in at almost 10 kilograms. <laughs> the fishes of New Zealand. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's insane. It's something we're now thinking about a second edition because it's been coming up six years and we keep finding new stuff. The other week, I got a new species of hatchetfish for New Zealand. Yeah, that's going to be included in this uh, new records paper that we're doing. It's it's meant to be more than just a new records paper. It's meant to also be a kind of an adjunct to, to the fishes of New Zealand. They're always out of date by the time they're printed, but you've got to start somewhere. And this is a, a stake in the sand that says, at this time, this is what we knew about the fish fauna of New Zealand and the adjacent seas. And from there, you springboard and say, in 10 years time, this is now what we know. So um, it's constantly growing and evolving new knowledge, new information, constant changes. Sadly, with climate change, there's a number of species which I just don't see around Wellington anymore. It's too warm. I haven't seen the Maori chief or the thornfish for a very long time. I think it's just too warm. Black cod has quit New Zealand mainland waters for the subantarctic Campbell Plateau. Small-scale cod is in retreat. So this is all because these are fish that have adapted to living in cold waters, and it's now just too damn warm. On the other side of the coin, though, we're seeing more tropical and subtropical species turning up. It's almost Every year we're getting another one or another handful. But do you know roughly how many new species you've described? Do you have a tally? Oh, oh, scoreboard. Boy, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't actually kept a scoreboard. There is a league table on the um, California Academy of Sciences catalogue <laughs> of the fishes. Yes, and it records who the taxonomists are how many species they described, and more importantly, how many are still valid. Oh, I was going to say, like, if, they were, <laughs> if they've been put in brackets, jail. Yes, it means, ooh, you got that wrong. Or you've been completely synonymized, and it's that species over there that uh, somebody else did. I think Piers Bleeker is still the number one. He was a um, Dutch medic or doctor attached to the Dutch uh, army, army of the Netherlands in, in Southeast Asia and in Indonesia. And he described vast numbers of species. But people like the late Jack Randall, 
Jürgen Nielsen, David Stein, they're producing large numbers of new species descriptions. They sort of separate out in, into their teams. So that they're for a particular family. Yes. It's just like, oh, this is this is the person yeah. leading the description. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I find myself working on just about everything. I've described everything from hagfish to sunfish, quite literally. The sunfish was really interesting. Marianne Niergaard was doing her PhD on them. And the Japanese worked on tissues and said, oh, there's four species of molar, four species in the molar one's undescribed. And she had already got a lot of measurements and counts and, and observational details. So she knew what the thing looked like. <laughs> and so she emailed me and said, oh, I'm doing this. What have you got? So we sent her our holdings. Now, this comes back to the fact that we have a large number of large specimens. And she went, oh, wow, and came out to New Zealand from Western Australia. And we'd photographed them all. And she sat down with me and I showed her the first photograph. She said, oh, that's the new species. And the next one, that's the new species. The next one. And on and on it went. It turns out half our material was undescribed in the new species. Wow. Then she said, oh, this is how you tell it apart. And I said, okay, how many more do you want? I'll talk to the observers. And she said, do you want to come in on the paper? Oh, yes, please. So I talked to the observers and we got a 53 kilogram specimen, which is the holotype. Well, you put a bounty on it. Well, <laughs> the reward was boasting rights. <laughs> it's, it's all we get in science so, often. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we don't do it for money. We really don't do it for money at all. Was there an offshore story you wanted to finish on? Not a trip that I was on. I was sitting at work one day and, and the phone goes. And it's a factory manager of one of our larger fishing companies. And he was fairly flustered. He said, I have a boat tied up and it's got over a million dollars worth of fish and I need a scientific name to land it because in New Zealand, you need a scientific name to land, sell or export species to prevent low-graded species being misrepresented as high-graded ones. So I said, oh, okay, how will you do this? Said, I'll send you a picture. And I said, well, where were you fishing? And he said, well, I can't tell you that. It's secret. Great. So anyway, eventually my email inbox goes bing and, and I open it up. And I look at the picture and I ring him back and said, so you were drop lining seamounts in the Indian Ocean, South Indian Ocean. How am I going? There's a silence at the end of the phone. And he goes, who told you that? And I said, the fish did. Get a pen and paper. I'll give you a scientific name and suggest a marketing name for you. That was sort of experience practically applied. That's not a situation I'd come across. I like this, like, get me a taxonomist. <laughs> yes, pretty much. The, another one was um, a phone call from a waymaster at a fishing competition down in Dunedin. And for your listeners who don't know this, Dunedin is right down in the south. It's sort of the last jumping off point before you head down towards icebergs in Antarctica. The, the guy was suspicious because somebody had landed a live fish and he was claiming the most unusual catch. To sort of put this into context, this isn't back in the days when digital cameras were still kind of, wow, gosh, and phones didn't come with cameras on them. So he said, if I trace around the outside of it and fax it to you, could you identify it? And I thought, oh. Like a challenge? Okay, right. Try it. Try it and see what happens. But in the meantime, try and find a digital camera. Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, the fax machine goes, now comes this picture. And I look at it and I think, someone's having a laugh here. Someone's pulling my leg. So I ring him back and he said, did you get the picture? I said, yeah, I got the picture. And he said, I've, I've got a camera. What do you want me to photograph? I said, I want you to photograph the head and the teeth. And so he said, right, the pictures are coming through now. And I said, where did he say he caught this fish? And he said, oh, an hour's steam from the Otago heads. 
Mm, really, I said, it's a piranha. <laughs> this guy had an illegal tank full of red belly piranhas in his garage, and they, they got too big, so he decided to sacrifice one. So needless to say, the Department of Conservation got involved, illegal fish. The police got involved, trying to defraud a fishing competition. He coughed and, and confessed. So anyway, yeah, the, the photographs confirmed it with the teeth. The strange inquiries that you get that come from all I didn't over. know your day-to-day was so CSI. <laughs> <laughs> it can be. You do get a lot of kind of really good inquiries like that. Um, I like that it's the people you're exposing. Like It's just IDing a fish, but it tells a story about you're lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're telling porcupines, you thought you could keep this fish a secret from me. One really good one was the frozen truck delivery guy turned up and off comes this huge southern bluefin tuna, Whoa. fresh, intact, frozen, massive, and an observer tag on it. It sat there, and the truck driver drove off, and I signed for it all. I thought, there's something not right here. I haven't asked for bluefin tuna, and why did the skipper get that? So anyway, I pushed it into the walk-in deep freeze with a big sign on it saying, do not touch. And I thought, right, okay. And I rang the Ministry of Prime Ministry, and I said, uh, this trip, who was the company? And they told me, so I rang up the company. I said, I want to talk to your factory manager, please. Put me through to the factory manager. You're not by any chance missing a really large southern bluefin tuna, are you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Have you got it? I suppose it's all been cut up. I said, no, it's sitting in the deep freeze with a sign on it saying, do not touch. If you want organized collection, it can be picked up from this address. (laughs) I think you just saved someone's job. The tag had gotten moved off a specimen, which was probably the size of a dinner plate, onto this massive southern bluefin. Is this really right? Should I be receiving several hundred thousand dollars worth of southern bluefin? Someone's having a rotten day. <laughs> well, the thing is, they would have paid quota on that too, and as well as it being, you know, probably the profit margin for that trip. All fun, I tell you. Oh, th- thanks yep. so much for the chat, mate. So, yeah, so great to hear yeah, from you. Yeah, this was lovely. And, I um, really appreciate yeah. this. We'll stay in touch. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. Thanks for joining me again, Heather, and helping out with this one. Anytime. You're going to regret that. Stop saying that. (laughs) I'll see how many episodes you can get out of me. (laughs) Ooh, unpaid work. Excellent. So we've got this internship and we can give you loads of exposure. Oh, I see. Will you put me on your socials? Oh, yes. You'll be twoted. Oh, thank you. We have four followers. (laughs) One of them's me. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Armatus Oceanic. If you would like to explore the deep sea yourself, we can help with that by providing technology and know-how. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can help with that as well through storytelling, fact-checking, and presentations. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. Blah! And that concludes... (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) I'm a professional. I'm very good at this. It's not late. I'm not very tired.